Money FM 89.3, best of weekends. International News Review. Welcome back to Saturday morning here on Money FM 89.3. Our international news review, Steve Oaken. Wow, our <laughs> Cubs baseball player dressed up for Halloween. Good morning, my friend. Happy Halloween celebrating our hometown. Club. And there you go. Gotta love it. Go Cubs. Are you both from Chicago? No. Oh, okay. I am. Yep. Where are you from, Steve, yeah. incidentally? I've never Chicago. asked. No, I was born in Chicago. Oh, were you born in, in Chicago? Chicago? Steve? I, I was a teenager. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay, I'm sorry. I thought you were always a Virginia guy. Moved e- moved east uh, in in junior high school. There you go. Yeah, you saw the light. The you saw the light and moved out. <laughs> 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 All right, Steve. Good. I love the uh, I love the black under your eyes. That's uh, you are ready for some heavy lifting today on the show. And first thing we got to talk about. Let's go to ASEAN first. Uh, Biden, uh, President Biden, participated in the summit on the twenty sixth. The f- kind of the latest in a bunch of re- uh, re rebalancing uh, efforts back toward Asia. What was the outcome of that summit? Look, Burma out, Biden in. I mean, this was a really <laughs> significant summit for, for both of those reasons. You know, first, ASEAN uh, disinvited uh, the, the, you know, Myanmar junta uh, from attending. Uh, this is really the first time ASEAN's ever taken uh, such a step. And that is because, you know, the, the military junta that has taken over the country has refused to engage with ASEAN on that five point consensus. So after uh, the the general was was disinvited and, and no one showed, then, you know, you had others coming in like like President Biden. So it was significant for both of those reasons. It was the first time in four years a U.S. president has participated uh, in the ASEAN summit. And if nothing else, I think it shows that the U.S. is ready uh, to engage uh, directly back into ASEAN as it really hasn't in the past four years under the Trump administration. Which is wonderfully reassuring, Steve, because it's something we've touched on this show many times, yeah. the commitment to Southeast Asia. But what impact, another question we've asked before, what impact, if any, do you think Biden's re- uh, reaffirmation of the region will have on the situation in Myanmar? Well, I, mean, I think it's 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 really um, forced ASEAN to to take a hard look uh, and say that we've got to you know move beyond you know ASEAN centrality and non-interference when it comes to the tragedy that is happening uh, in Myanmar and you know Cambodia, which is going to be the ASEAN chair next year or, or now I guess now that the, the, the summit has ended, has said they are going to stick with this policy of not having. Uh, Myanmar included in these types of leadership meetings unless they start to engage with the special envoy from ASEAN to address those problems. So, and that I think is in part because of what the United States um, is doing, part of the the U.S. and and not just the U.S., but U.S., EU, and others, their insistence um, that the Myanmar situation be addressed by ASEAN within ASEAN. And now you see the U.S. pledging, you know, over $100 million in new initiatives, um, and expanding the U.S.-ASEAN partnership. Um, you see President Biden saying he is going to be coming personally and, and can expect to be seen in person uh, in the region. 
hopefully soon. So a lot happening on, on both fronts, and it's not a coincidence that these are moving simultaneously. We just saw pictures this morning of uh, the Myanmar government that had shelled, bombed a, a neighborhood in a western town in Myanmar. Uh, it, it was a very suburban-looking neighborhood, big houses, uh, relatively speaking, and they destroyed some uh, dozen or more homes there, big fires. Uh, and they were saying that was an area that uh, subversives, insurgents were living in. And and uh, and attacking troops from so it, this is a as always a complex and getting more complex situation in Myanmar and it just doesn't seem like ASEAN can do anything about it or is mm-hmm. doing anything about it or is able to do anything about it. Well, well that's the question. It's finally taking some affirmative step, even if just not inviting uh, the the leader of the military junta to the meeting. And if if if, if Myanmar gets isolated within ASEAN, if it starts to feel not just political pressure, but starts to eventually feel financial pressure from increased sanctions or or limits on foreign investment, you're seeing more and more companies pulling out of Myanmar, even though they're complying with the sanctions because they're not dealing with the the military yeah. directly. It can make a difference. You know, we, we've, we've always tried to be an optimist, and it always hurts us when we think that way. But maybe well, let's try, this you know. is starting to change it a bit. Well, he went to the East Asia Summit on the very next day mm. uh, with uh, Japan, India, Australia. And what, how was that diff- a different discussion uh, happening with those, uh, with those partners versus ASEAN? Well, ASEAN, you have more you have more direct engagement, like bringing in you know direct partnerships on health futures and COVID, uh, in in the climate and the like. Whereas East Asia is more of a forum that that ASEAN has brought together to bring ASEAN is is a central player when it comes to China and Japan and India uh, in the United States. And so what what the president announced at the East Asia summit was that he was going to explore, the United States was going to explore with partners the development of an Indo-Pacific economic framework. Mm. Now, right now, that's just a soundbite um, because there is no economic framework without a trade strategy, and we still don't know what the U.S. trade strategy is when it comes to this part of the region. Is it going to pursue digital trade agreements? It would be much better, of course, if it came back uh, to TPP. Um, and so we don't know that yet, but at least it's a, a sign that the, the U.S. is engaging. It's it's taking the Indo-Pacific from beyond the military and strategic to the economic. And now we'll, we'll see how it gets fleshed out. Yeah, looking at it from an optimistic standpoint, Steve, I, I see a key element in all these meetings. At the ASEAN meeting, there was 20.5 million uh, given to tackle the climate crisis, part, part of this climate futures. Not a great amount, but maybe slightly tokenistic, but a move in the right direction. Decarbonisation was discussed at East Asia Summit, which of course leads us to COP26 happening shortly. Where are we at now with the climate discussion with regards to President Biden? Well, in terms of, of, of the United States, President Biden was hoping that the the U.S. Congress would have passed what he calls his Build Back Better legislation, which would have uh, given hundreds of billions of dollars uh, funded in the United States towards climate, because the U.S. has to address its own climate policies as part of COP26. The bill didn't get passed, but finally the Democrats are aligned. The progressives and and the moderates have said, we're going to pass this bill. It's going to be $1.75 trillion. It's going to cover climate on one hand and then families and children on the other hand. And over $500 billion of that 
is going to go to tackle the climate crisis, primarily through tax incentives to get businesses to invest, you know, in renewables, you know, wind, solar, uh, electric vehicles, batteries, all of those types of things that are needed. So it's a significant bill. It would have been much better. No, I wouldn't say much better. It would have been better had it been passed and signed into law before COP26, but it's pretty clear it's going to get signed soon. And that's showing U.S. leadership. The problem is we don't have Chinese leadership. Right. And one thing I really wanted to ask you while you're here, Steve, as I saw yesterday, he was meeting with President Macron in France. Mm. And I found that fascinating for all kinds of reasons. Firstly, as you know, the Brits and the French are involved in this fishing crisis. And then, of course, uh, Biden turns up after the AUKUS, AUKUS, however you wish to pronounce it, crisis, you know, a storm in a submarine. And it was interesting, a couple of things that stood out to me, Steve. One, that they had a meeting, very cordial by all accounts, that lasted the best part of 90 minutes behind closed doors, just the two of them. And an acknowledgement, perhaps, from President Biden, the word he used was clumsy. Uh, the the American handling of the submarine tra- uh, contract was clumsy. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, clumsy is probably the most polite word <laughs> that the French would have accepted uh, for the handling of it, not just by the Americans, but by, you know, your country, mm. and and the Australians, of course, as well. But look, this is it. it this is in relatively small potatoes. Like the, the U.S. and France have to work together yep. on climate they have to work together on China. This could have been handled better. It, it has to get put behind, and there are going to be other things, I'm sure, behind closed doors that the U.S. and the U.K. and the Australians are going to do uh, with the French to make up for it. But at the end of the day, this is, you know, the oldest alliance the United States has is, mm. is with France. You know, while we were off fight, fighting the Brits to get our freedom, we had the French, you know, and, and Marquis de Lafayette supporting us. And so it, it's it's this is a relationship that is that is rock solid and and it was a clumsy event but it's going to move forward to address the real problems that face the u.s france and 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 the rest of the world steve steve the word choice that the president used clumsy is the one that's made all the headlines as we know and do you think that was a mistake because he's already taking heat especially among conservatives oh he's being too soft he's not standing up for u.s interests etc etc by by, you know, basically bowing down to Macron and saying, oh, we made a, you know, kind of a, we did this in a bad way. Should he have taken a, a stronger posture uh, in that conversation or or was this the only way he could go? Could he could he or should he have used different words, for example, if if not anything else? No, I mean, he was he look, the the, the U.S. did what was what it thought was in its best interest, which is that to have that, you know, AUKUS deal, you know, a 50, a 50 billion dollar deal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. More than. Good, yeah. It was a good and, thing. And, and, yeah. and, and to send a really strong signal to China uh, as well and to bring Australia, the U.S. and the U.K. aligned in, in you know, in, in East Asia and Southeast Asia. So, no, he, he did the absolute right thing. This is irrelevant. No one is going to remember, you know, other than the fact that the U.S. and France are, are on a pathway back to, to repairing their the, the relationship from that from that 
bump in the road. Ignore what what you know the Republicans are going to say about you know a word choice. It's irrelevant. Yeah. It's it's the policy is the right policy. And a bit of a left field question, but it's something that genuinely interests me, Steve, from an historical perspective. I think people sometimes forget the long term relationship that the French and the Americans have. And when I say some people, I mean the Brits. The Brits often go on about their special relationship. Well, it doesn't go back to 1776 and before, yeah. uh, as the French and the American relationship does. And do you think that the British are possibly underestimating how close French and American ties actually are? I get the impression sometimes that Boris Johnson's government thinks if all else fails, the Americans will always stand alongside us against the French or against the EU. Whereas I think President Biden has made that very clear that's not going to happen. Well, I mean, but look, these are all strong relationships the United States has. And the United States and and the United Kingdom, you know, France, Germany. I mean, you go back certainly post-World War II. It was this was the the collective um, that, you know, defeated, you know, the Soviet Union um, that that, you know, has been part of the, the, the engine of economic growth and is going to have to work together on our shared challenges. And from a U.S., EU, U.K. perspective, those shared challenges are, you know, climate first and foremost um, and how to engage with China um, with its, you know, change in, in you know, economic nationalism mm-hmm. and policies on common prosperity and its aggressiveness in the South China Sea and its aggressiveness towards India and its treatment of its own, you know, people in, in Hong Kong and Xinjiang. No, the U.S., U.K., France, Germany, we're always going to have to work together. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but it's always going to work together. Yeah, that's the key, isn't it, Glenn? It's China. All, all attention now is focused 21st century towards China. Keeps coming back. Steve, any of the, um, any of the happenings of last week have any impact directly on Singapore, on business here, on, on what either American businesses or Singaporean businesses uh, will take away from, especially these, the meetings that happened in Asia. Uh, COP26 is, I think, another story. Well, I'm thinking a little bit, you see government following businesses lead, right? Businesses have recognized um, that, that supply chains need to be diversified and resilient. And you cannot have a diversified and resilient supply chain if you're doing all of your manufacturing in one country, especially if that one country is China. So we've seen that diversification out of China where where company where, where companies keep manufacturing in China for China. But when it is uh, export, it's going to be coming you know, to Vietnam and maybe Malaysia or Thailand or Indonesia. Uh, and you're seeing Singapore as, as that regional hub for it. So that benefit of, of Southeast Asia that's been coming from this move that businesses have been doing for years now, I mean, governments are now trying to, to support that, especially coming in with the types of trade agreements and, and policies that, that need to uh, enable that type of sharing. And so you saw like the U.S.-Singapore you know, partnership Uh, where, you know, one of the words is, you know, you have, you know, offshoring of supply chains or you have onshoring of supply chains. You know, one of my friends said in the Singapore government, they refer to it as friendshoring of supply (laughs) chains. Let let, let those U.S. companies put their supply chains here in Southeast Asia and let's have the companies run out of Singapore and that's friendshoring. And so, yeah, you're seeing this happen. And and, and so it's it's, it's business and government working, working in tandem. 
All right, Steve, let's move on to our final story of the morning. A good news story for uh, a change in a world where there's lots of tension. We go to the Philippines. Uh, Any one of us who have have traveled overseas, especially to a resort destination, Mm. one thing we always want to do is get a fresh coconut. And in fact, we do it here in Singapore as well. But it creates a lot of coconut husk waste. And we've got an, an, uh, a, a small upstart startup company uh, in, in, in the Philippines that's actually doing something good with that. Yeah, no, and this is part of a, of, of, of a movement towards social entrepreneurship. Hmm. Um, and this is where you see, you know, predominantly younger people who say, I want to make an impact. And, and the way I'm going to make an impact is through business. And, and I'm going to make that impact through business in my local right, community or at the, at the very, you know, at the, on the ground level. And so I worked very closely with a, uh, a, a social entrepreneur, uh, Aaron Fishman, who, who founded East Bali Cashews uh, a few years ago because he said, you see all these cashews being grown in Bali, yet they're exported to India or Vietnam mm. for processing, you know, and then they go to Malaysia for packaging and then they get sold elsewhere. Why don't we have all of the processing and packaging where the cashews are grown in the villages? And we're going to give the the financing to those people who live in the village and we're going to create a global business in our little village in Bali. And he was able uh, to accomplish that. You see the same thing happening all over Southeast Asia, including you know, the Philippines with, with that recent example about using, you know, coconut husk instead of plastics. This is, is, is where you're seeing a lot of the solutions coming from. It's, it's ground level up. It's great. And hopefully we'll get some progress in Glasgow at, at COP26. Mm. Um, but you, you see this vitality. And, and in Southeast Asia, you, I think you see it in some ways more than anywhere else in the world, because in this part of the world, you have a very, you know, a, a smart entrepreneurial class where only a little bit of money will go a long way in making a huge social impact. No, I think it's a truly wonderful story, a wonderful initiative. As Glenn rightly mentioned, so many coconuts are left behind here. We see them all the time, coconut husks at East Coast Park. And what I'm thinking, Steve, what are your thoughts on this? Glenn and his good friend, Rob Salisbury, they often collect rubbish along East Coast Park. Now, I'm thinking they should start collecting coconut husks, Steve, and then they could start the entrepreneurship here. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, I think Glenn's a natural businessman. I already, he's, already, he's already pitching these shirts that you guys are wearing. So. I don't have enough to do, you know, on a weekly basis. He doesn't. I, I need one doesn't. more project. Him and Rob, Sunday mornings, <laughs> coconut husks. I can see it now. You know, we... Uh, that, and that's... Yeah. Go ahead, Steve. It's, that's part of like, the, the circular economy. I mean, you're finding things, you know, that, 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 that we would otherwise throw away or, you know, and otherwise, you know, get rid of. How do you recycle plastics? How do you reuse, you know, those coconut husks? What do you do with, you know, like my friend in, in Bali, he takes the shells of the cashews and he uses that to power the factory. Right. So he burns the the cashew shells and that is what powers the factory. So you don't need to burn coal. You don't need to use electricity. It's all biofuels. And so all of these movements on biofuels and and how you achieve the U.N. sustainable goals through them, there's just a lot of opportunity for for people who are a lot smarter, I think, than the three of us to to come up with these solutions. (laughs) Well, hopefully we will get there one day and and hopefully governments get behind this and Mm. so that, and I'm not saying government has to intervene in everything, but 
in a way that promotes a business environment that lets these uh, small startup companies uh, that are upcycling, recycling, uh, survive and thrive and get into the mainstream economy. And there are a lot of examples in Singapore alone. I just wrote a a program about it recently. Do you know there's a small startup now in Singapore? I'll, I'll put the link up. Edible Cutlery. Mm. Edible cutlery. They they produce these spoons and and forks that you can and you can even dip them in ice cream. They mm. don't sort of break away, and you mm. can di- uh, dip them in warm soups, hot soups. And then when you're finished, you eat the cutlery. So it's made from starch, some kind of starch. Yeah, or something. I'll, I'll put the link up shortly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's healthy and obviously it's sustainable. But it's these kind of initiatives, uh, Steve, and they're not necessarily that expensive. Small startups, young people, that give us a little bit of hope, don't they? They do, and this is what you. But you, you, you need to have funding to come from yep. this, and this is kind of that movement towards impact investing. And so the question is: Are investors right? So on the one hand, you have right, regular investing, where you you get a, a market rate of return for your investment. So if it's private equity, you're you're looking for a twenty plus percent, you know, return. Or if it's a bond, it might be five or six percent. But whatever it is, but you're looking for a market rate of return. And then there is philanthropy, which is where you're making a donation and you're expecting no return back. Um, on your donation and you're giving it to a, a, a you know an, an NGO or, or yeah. other type of charity. Yeah. But then there's this middle ground of impact investing where people are saying it's it's entrepreneurs who are gonna who are going to really solve our problems when it comes to societal challenges. And I will take less of a return from a financial perspective if you will give me an outsized return on on my social uh, yeah. on my social investment. And that's that blend of a return where the investor saying give me some money back but you put the rest of it in for a societal return. It's 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 slowly taking off. There's still a, a, a challenge in how you define impact investing and what the investor expectations are, but it's 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 starting to build up steam in, in Singapore with its collection of family offices where very wealthy people are coming in mm. and bringing billions of dollars and looking to invest it. If a small portion of that goes to the impact space, it's going to have a, a, a great return. Wonderful. Awesome, Steve. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Steve, uh, for all of your input today, for your Chicago Cubs costume. Thanks for yeah. taking me home to Sweet Home Chicago. Uh, I hope yeah, you have a great have, day. Wait, Glenn, do you have, do you have, yeah. can I give you a 30-second Singapore sure. Halloween story? Absolutely. Yeah. All right. so, when we mo- all right, so when we moved here, as Neil, you were mentioning, you know, back in 03, the people didn't celebrate Halloween. Hmm. And so Paige wanted to have Halloween for the boys in our neighborhood, you know, where you lived off of Orange Grove Road. And so she created a, a one pager, explained what Halloween was, put it in everybody's mailbox, put an <laughs> orange pumpkin on it saying, if you want to participate in this holiday, hang the pumpkin on your door. Oh, and then we'll know clever. whether to knock or not. Yeah. So we would like go door to door where the where the Halloween's were, and the the neighbors who had never been participating in Halloween were so excited they were filming us right coming in, <laughs> and we went to like the first house and they had like little cups of apple juice and apple slices <laughs> and like in the U.S. you'd be like no you would never take you know anything unwrapped right but here in Singapore we're like, oh sure drink the or drink the apple juice eat the apple slices so so we 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 were part of the blame Neil of trying to bring Halloween oh, it's all good fun I'm only but I've got to, look, 10 seconds, I've got to ask this, right? For, for the uh, ignorant sort of British guy here, the black ink, I've always been too scared to ask, oh. the black ink under oh. the eyes yeah. that are used in baseball, for the benefit of Singaporeans who don't know, why is it applied? And, and football as well. Go and ahead, football. Steve. Yeah. It, it, it's eye black, and so what will happen when you're obviously you usually play baseball during the day and it's very sunny, I mean, the theory would be that some of the glare would come down and be attracted 
to the black, and so your your vision would be less hazy uh, or less glare with with the eye black. So obviously, you don't need it here on a, in Singapore inside on a cloudy day, <laughs> but you'd wear it outside. It, um, it really works. For, I was kind of awesome. When you really when work? you're outside yeah. in the hard sunlight, if you put that black under your yeah. eyes like that, it it mm. diffuses uh, the harsh sunlight. Absolutely, I, I never knew. That. I mean, I know it does. I used to do the zinc when I used to go into the ocean in Australia, across the nose and sure. the cheeks, but I didn't know that. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. You see it in a lot of uh, a lot of sports, outdoor sports in the U.S. So. Well, I hope it gives you lots of protection, Steve, sitting indoors <laughs> in your house. <laughs> All right, Steve. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, guys. Happy Halloween. Thank you. You too. International News Review. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.